Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. Doug and I have been talking recently about topics for the podcast, and there are always all sorts of topics, and there's different genres, and there's books, and there's different types of music. And we decided that we were going to start talking about albums, specific albums, do some episodes about specific albums that we like. Now, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you know that we as the Renaissance Men of Music have (laughs) quite varied interests. And the overlap in the Venn diagram of our interests is fairly large. So we've just, we've made a short list of a number of albums that we both know well enough that we can talk about them. This is really an experiment. We were just talking before we started recording. We're not sure what we're going to get out of this. It's just going to be us talking about the album. So if you don't like the album, you might want to just go to another episode of a different podcast. For this one, we're going to try Exile on Main Street because, well, it's one of those classic albums that we mention often that we both know really well, that we've both been listening to a lot. And the title for this podcast episode, Exile on Mondays, because Doug and I were talking last week, and when we nailed down the idea, I said, okay, so we'll do Exile on Monday, and it sounded like a good title for a podcast episode. That's, we're just always just uh, effervescent with with clever thoughts and ideas. Um, Yeah, Exile on Main Street came out in, what, 1971, right? 72? Look at this. Have I done my homework? <laughs> you haven't done your homework. It came out in 1972. Well, to me, it's, it's so timeless that I forget. I know it came out in the early 70s. It came out after Sticky Fingers. It came out after they had uh, ended their relationship with Alan B. Klein, uh, Abco Records. Uh, so they this was their this was really their first album on their own with Rolling Stone Records. I mean, Rolling Stone Records, Sticky Fingers was released on Rolling Stone Records also, but Alan B. Klein was still in the picture. This album is really the first one that they did. And you wonder why it's a double album. You wonder why it's not as polished as other albums. You wonder, you know, why it, recordings are from different sessions. There's just so much going on in this album. But I think, I think where we could start is maybe, why is it a double album? You know, I was thinking that as I was listening to it this weekend. What's interesting is it's only about 60 minutes long. So it could be just three sides, or they could have added four more tracks, and maybe they didn't have any other good tracks that they wanted to add, but they had more than enough for one album, and in some ways it comes across like a statement. Now, I think we both watched that documentary, The Stones in Exile, Yes, which it's about an hour long. The the problem is it was sort of produced by Mick and Charlie, so it gives their side of the story. It, It was actually quite strange. There was some footage, contemporaneous footage, the story was some French photographer went up there, heard the stones were there, and asked if he could take some pictures. And they said, sure, why don't you film us? And so he's got some footage of them uh, playing. He's got some footage of them eating and drinking and doing all sorts of stuff. But what's weird is it's constructed like this sort of template-based rock documentary where you've got a handful of people doing interviews saying what they think about it, which makes no sense. Who cares what Martin Scorsese thinks about the album? There's some singer, I don't even know who he is, who was just like, really? Is that what they did? And I just find it, you know, Benicio del Toro, what does he have to do with this? So the the documentary seems like there's a lot of filler. It is interesting because it does tell part of the story. 
Uh, it tells a story about the Stones being in exile because the tax rate in the UK was 90%. And of course, that's not the whole story. It was the marginal tax rate. And I looked it up, and it was 90% above 20,000 pounds, which 20,000 pounds then was about 200,000 pounds now. So they would have been far from poor, even if they stayed in the UK. But it sounds like they just didn't pay taxes before because no one told them to. You get the feeling that these were just young guys making music, and they didn't they didn't have control of any of this. Everything was well. Alan B. Klein, who was parodied in the, in the in the Beatles Ruddles parody as Ron Decline, wasn't <laughs> exactly um, good for the artists in his stable. I mean, he worked with the Beatles, he worked with um, the Stones, and uh, he was not a good influence on them. So yeah, they came out of uh, 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 out of this business relationship. They came into the seventies with this this huge problem of, of uh, in their business and was finally somewhat resolved uh, with this particular album. So yeah, they were tax exiles. I always think it's funny though, exile on Main Street, because it, I, it's obviously Main Street USA, right? Right, because the term Main Street isn't really used here. They use the term High Street right. for the equivalent of Main Street. But even, but even High Street is like where the shops are, but Main Street right. is like the main thoroughfare in, a, in an American town. Right. So it's very strange to how you how are you exiled in public? That's this that's the interesting thing. But I but you know the other thing is what does the title have to do with any of the musical content? What does the title have to of most albums have to do with any of the musical content? I mean sometimes the title is the name there's a title track and and, the, and so an album is based on that but in many cases, that, that's not the case. Right, and I often, so I, I had the same conclusion, and I began thinking, well, do any of their album names mean anything? I mean, you look at Goat's Head Soup. Why the heck did the Rolling Stones name an album Goat's Head Soup? Why did they, you know, why was, uh, you know, It's Only Rock and Roll was a song, Let It Bleed was a song, Beggar's Banquet, why was that supposed, what did that have to do with the music in it? But it definitely, the name influences the way you interpret the music uh and also since we're talking about the name of the album we should talk about the packaging of the album which was extremely influential in how you listen to the music because um each song was listed um and uh in the if they had guest musicians or people playing uh, their non-conventional instrument for instance if mick taylor played bass you saw that so while you were listening you're thinking about who's on the record the pictures that went along with it, the freak show pictures, the circus pictures, and then the weird sort of uh, out-of-context black-and-white pictures of Jagger and walking along a boardwalk, is that where it is? All of these things influence how you look at it and how you listen to the music. It was a very strange uh, multimedia experience. So the cover was done by Robert Frank. He's a Swiss photographer who died recently. They got interested in him because they saw his book, The Americans, and he came to the United States, took a trip across the United States, and published this book showing people in everyday life. It was a vision of America by a foreigner, and they were foreigners, and they were linking this to America, because let's not forget, all the music here is American music. Oh, yeah. It's blues, it's country, it's ballads. As they had been singing the blues since the beginning— this is an ode to American music, perhaps more than any of their other albums, except for all the early ones with covers. Uh, the thing I thought was funny, somebody, I don't know where I read this, but somebody said they took the same, oh, it was Lenny Kay in his Rolling Stone review. He said they took the same Rolling Stone song and just banged it out in 
infinite ways. And, and, and that's, that's a very interesting, that's an astute observation, I think, because I kind of tend to think of each song as just like that. It's like they picked a certain genre to do, and then they banged out a Rolling Stones song that fit it, except for the couple of covers. But, um, you know, they definitely seem to have... But even the covers fit in the same style. It's it's like each song is the facet of the gem that is the album. Yes. And each one is... Th- there are so many similarities among the different styles. Now, to be fair, every Ramones song sounds alike, so there are a lot of bands who do that. The Stones have a broader palette than the Ramones, but it does seem almost like... An, an exercise in some ways. Yes. It's like, how they can were we do ch- this? Can, can we, yeah. Can we do this? Can we do that? And when you think about, I mean, there is a wide range of styles. There's, there's blues, there's boogie, there's gospel, there's ballads, there's, you know, there's a Slim Harpo song, there's a Robert Johnson song. It's probably their most varied album that remains in the, the core Rolling Stone style. For me, after Exile on Main Street, a couple albums later, they're no longer the same Rolling Stones. You've got that period of Beggar's Banquet and Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers, and Exile on Main Street. Sticky Fingers to me is... A, and don't forget, get you, you always want to leave Get Your Because it's live. Out, I'm only talking about studio. I'm talking about creations as opposed yeah. to performances. Well, there's some creation on Yaya. Okay. I just want to get that. Okay. Uh, I consider Sticky Fingers, we were talking about this last week. We both agree it's not as good. Uh, for me, every song on Exile on Main Street is good. Every song on Baker's Banquet, every song on Let It Bleed. Right. It's interesting, too. Um, some of the songs from Exile on Main Street were recorded during the Sticky Fingers uh, sessions, but you can't really tell which ones. Uh, I suppose if you really thought about it, you could figure out. You know, there's a lot of songs that sound like Moonlight, like Side 2 of Sticky Fingers. A lot of that stuff is reminiscent of what they did on Exile. A lot of uh, Slide and a lot of uh, just Keith playing acoustic and, and Mick Taylor going off on, on Slide tangents. Um, but you can't really tell. But, you know, Mick Jagger always says he wasn't happy with this record, and he's the guy that produced it. He's the guy that was, was supposed to clean it up. And I think the lesson for all of them here was no more screwing around. We're going to put out a polished record from now on every time. Because every record that came out afterward was extremely polished. Goat's Head Soup, It's Only Rock and Roll, uh, and whatever came after that. That's what after girls, Taylor et cetera, left. Et yeah, yeah. Um, everything highly polished. Whereas this was the last of that sort of sitting around in a French mansion basement cutting tracks. <laughs> <laughs> this is the last of that. We're not going to do that anymore. But as a document, it's extraordinary. And and so I would bookend the 70s with the two classic rock albums, double albums, Exile on Main Street and London Calling. And they both have a similar feel to them, that they're exploring a range of styles that are very close. And I think we're going to talk about London Calling in a future episode. Sure. In in some ways, it's really good that Exile on Main Street doesn't have more stuff, because then it would have become Sandinista. Right, a triple album with two albums of with two discs of good material, but still, it's only sixty minutes long. They could have put another song on each side, or say uh, sides two and four that only have four tracks each. They could have put two more songs there. But interestingly, each side, and you have to. I still think of it as four sides. Um, each of the four sides is is pretty well self contained. They they all sort of end with this gospel song with this choral singing yay. You know, Tumbling Dice, and then what? Uh, what's the last song on the side, too? I don't even got the list in front of me. Loving Cup, yeah. Let It Loose, and Soul Survivor. Right. And Soul Survivor, again, seems like they just stuck it on at the end. 
Because the song before Soul Survivor is uh, what? Let It Loose? Shine a Light. Shine a Light, which is an incredibly intense Billy Preston, uh, thank goodness you are here in, for the session, uh, gospel song. <laughs> um, and, and that, to me, seems like the ideal song to close yes, the album. Yes, it's almost like now you mentioned London Calling, right? What's the last song on London Calling? Train in Train Vain. Vain. What, the, what the heck is that doing yeah. there? So it's a very interesting sort of correlation. But could it be, instead of ending on that emotional note of shine a light, it's like Soul Survivor is starting over. Could be. Because could that, be. Cause it, when you go back like, to right. side one and you have Rocks Off, Soul Survivor and Rocks Off are really similar. So it could be a way to make you want to go back to the first side to hear that, you know, quite exciting track in the beginning. That's interesting because you've been led through this very hedonistic uh, uh, trail through this album. And then at the end, you're a soul survivor. You know, you've, you've made it through all this. Because most of the songs are about sex and power and, and things like that. Uh, and then at the end, when you are redeemed, you have decided to let it loose. Uh, you are, your soul has, been, has survived, and now you can go back to the beginning and listen to it again. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking when they were putting it together, uh, uh, but it's, it's very Well, there's listenable. always a question about sequencing, isn't it? Because yeah. the, the songs that are first on a side of an LP get better sound because they've got more tracks. They've got more, what would you say, more um, inches uh, as, as the record turns. So the songs at the end don't have such great sound. And in some ways, you might want the more raucous songs at the end because they don't need the same fidelity as something like Sweet Virginia, which is the first one on side two. By the way, I, I think Sweet Virginia is my favorite song on the album. Um, it has everything to me, for that country ballad, and I think I mentioned it to you last week, it sounds like the kind of music the Saturday Night Live house band used to play at the end of the show. Yeah, that, yeah that's a gospel-y sort of yeah, revival. But, but it's got that sort of, it can go on and on and on until it fades out or until people move on. Interestingly, it was used in the closing credits of Knives Out, that film by Ryan Johnson recently, which is a detective movie. It didn't fit at all in the style of the movie, other than the fact that Daniel Craig's character had a very strong Southern accent. That's the only connection I can see. <laughs> and I don't think there were any other songs in the movie. This just comes on during the credits. And when I heard that, it actually made me sit and watch the credits to the end, because it, <laughs> right. it's the kind of song you just can't turn off in the middle, right? Yeah, well, it's a sing-along, and it's got all kinds of fun things in it and it's fun and you know it's one of the few country songs if you will that keith richards wrote because definitely totally into it was graham parsons guy and he loved that that sound and mick jagger always seems to write these goofy country lyrics to all their country songs like girl with the faraway eyes stupid song yeah um i st i love dead flowers but i still think the lyrics are crummy i think um and some of the other Southern songs that he's done with Keith, it's just, you're just, you're insulting Keith by writing these silly lyrics for these songs. But um, at least Keith got to sing happy, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't sing a lot, but he's not really a singer. What I find interesting about this album, and, and I didn't go back and compare the track lists of other albums, but it's the presence of Bobby Keys on sax. 
that's really a really emotional sax, almost Clarence Clemens sax on this album. Yeah, yeah. I know he'd been playing with them for a few years, and and someone's gonna, some Rolling Stones fan is gonna listen and think, oh yes, but he was on sixty percent of the songs on Let It Bleed, etc. But he's very present here. He was a pal of Keith Richards. He loved hanging out yeah. with Keith Richards, and you know he's a Texas guy. They wrote Happy. He wrote Happy with Keith while he's playing the Barry sax. So if you listen to Happy. You can understand why the bass riff and the that 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 Barry Sack stuff that's in it because they were sitting around the studio with Jimmy Miller yeah. and said, "Let's cut this song." And uh, so it's interesting how much of an influence he has on things. Yeah, that that was the story where the two of them got up early and everyone else was asleep and they started recording. And in fact, the the whole recording process is interesting because they did a lot in the basement of the French Mansion, but. They had to do a lot of overdubs in L.A. afterwards. I think all of mixed vocals were re-recorded, which, on the one hand, you see in the documentary that they are performing as a band, more or less, recording as a band, more or less, not on every track. But then, when you realize that all the vocals have to be redone, it gives it a different feel. It's like Mick has had time to percolate this music, and it's very possible that the vocals are far better than they would have been because of that, he's listened to these songs over and over. He's thought about his phrasing. Yeah, it's inter- he hated the... They recorded vocals at Nelcote, but he, uh, they had to record them in the kitchen, and it was very shiny, and I guess he, it, was just, it was just muddy. And even yeah. so, but even so, um, the vocals here are still muddy. Uh, we were talking about trying to figure out the, the lyrics, and unless you, unless you went to the store like I did and looked at the songbook every, every Saturday <laughs> to try to memorize the lyrics, you could not figure out half the things that Mick was singing about. And you think it's weird because, but Mick, you had the opportunity to clean up the mix in L.A. Why did yeah. you go back and make it sound muddy like the original masters? Why did you want to make it sound like that? And it, I think it just comes back to that they wanted it to sound this way because they could have cleaned it well, up. There, there is a, a an anecdote that I heard, and it wasn't in the documentary, is that after the final mix was done in L.A., they put it into a car and drove around listening to it on the tape deck of a car because they wanted it to sound good in a car. They weren't concerned about how it would sound good at home because they knew that the majority of people were far from audiophiles, that they listened on mono record players or they listened in their cars. Yeah, well, the other that's interesting too, but uh, another facet of this is that there's no real single on the record. I mean, the fact that Tumbling Dice was the single, I don't know if that's what I would have picked. I don't, I, I guess so. Well, there's only two singles. And so this is the kind of record you'd expect to spawn six singles. They did Tumbling Dice backed with Sweetback Angel and Happy backed with All Down the Line. And that's a kind of strange, I mean, I understand Happy because it's a happy song. And I kind of think the reason they did Tumbling Dice was for the publishing, because it was a song that didn't Linda Ronstadt record it relatively yes. soon afterwards? Yeah, yeah. He, uh, Mick Jagger actually t- said it was okay for her to record it. So maybe they're releasing it as a single meant that they wanted to get it out so it was a familiar song to help its popularity. Because remember, you make a lot of money from the publishing. In fact, you may make more from the publishing from the record sales. Or something like that. Yeah, that's that's an interesting thought. It is actually a very it's a it's one of the better produced songs on the record. It's it's shinier than you know ventilator blues or something like that. Um, but it's still not 
up to par, in my opinion. I still can't. The guitars are very muddy in it. You know, trying to. F I used to sit down to this record and try to figure out guitar licks. I'm sure many people have. And it, it's like one guitar will end, and then the other one picks up where it is, and you, it's not this. It's not a single riff. There aren't. There's just a lot of problems with listening to it. It's just a very muddy mix. I still don't. I just don't understand why they wanted it to sound that way. So here's an interesting change in Tumbling Dice. Linda Ronstadt changed the lyrics a bit. So the Rolling Stones version starts with, Women think I'm tasty, but they're always trying to waste me. Linda Ronstadt sings, People try to rape me, always think I'm crazy. Wow. That's a big change. You know, I think... I mean, obviously, she can't talk about women in, in that type of song. You know, what? now that I'm thinking about this, I mentioned a minute ago that, you know, Mick had... She had a Mick's permission. I think she actually asked Mick what the lyrics were at a party or something. And Mick told her the lyrics. So maybe there's been some, maybe there was some loss there. According to Wikipedia, uh, her band played Tumbling Dice for, so for sound checks, but no one knew the words. Mick Jagger suggested that she should sing more hard rock songs and suggested Tumbling Dice, and she made him write down the lyrics. This is years later, though. This is 70, she recorded it in 77, released it in 78, so it wasn't immediate. Oh, that's later than yeah. I thought it was. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's quite so the cover. So, wh what are your favorite songs on the record? Oh, geez. Well, I like side yeah. three. I think because it's got the, it's got the real raw blues and boogie on it. Um, I like "Turret on the Run," "Ventilator Blues," "Just Want to See His Face." I think is great. "Let It Loose," I think is great. Um, but yeah, I, I I really like side three. I think I'd have to go with that. If I if I had if I could only take one side to a desert island, that would be the side. Mm. <laughs> I, I I'm I'm. I'm torn between side two and side four. So side two has Sweet Virginia, Torn and Frayed, Sweet Black Angel, and Loving Cup, which as, as a suite of songs really works well together. Yes. Um, but side four has, you know, All Down the Line, Stop Breaking Down, Shine a Light, and Soul Survivor, which yeah. as, as, a, as a sequence for a short party, that's pretty good. Yeah, uh, side four is quite good. Side four is quite good. You're, you're absolutely right, though. They are all sequenced as a suite. I hadn't thought of them that way. Yep. But that's really what it is. They're all individual blues suites, sort yeah. of. Yeah, I should. I'm going to start thinking of it that way. That's a that's an interesting way of. And thinking. we lose that when we listen to it on a CD or by streaming. We lose that separation. And we've talked about this in the past. You made an Apple script so you can play music as it was on the original sides to, with the appropriate pauses. We lose the the beginnings and endings. We hear Tumbling Dice go right into Sweet Virginia, but we forget that you had to flip a record, or it, or if you had one of those, I don't know if it was side one and two on one disc and three and four on the other, or was it one and four and two and three? It would be. So if you had a mo yes, one and four and two. If and three. you could, right? So you'd have to wait for the next disc to drop down for the next song. Loving Cup goes into Happy. Yeah, that's a real contrast, right? Let it loose into all down the line. Yeah, another jolt. Yeah. So the each side is a self-contained unit in some ways. Yeah. That's funny. Um, you know, you say you say you're gonna listen to the next side immediately. I don't know how many times I just played the one side and put the record away. Yep. Yeah. Or just played the one side and set it on repeat. Yeah. Did you have one of them record players that could repeat? <laughs> no. Oh, no, wait a you minute. you never had that? Oh, yeah, yeah, with the automatic changer. Yeah, you could set it to repeat. No, I, no, no, the, where it would get to the end of a side and go back to the beginning. The beginning, yeah, it would pick up and go back to the beginning. Yeah, the, the needle, side, the, yeah. the cart, the arm, tone arm, yeah. The arm, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
So sometimes I would just let the the side go and play over and over again because there is a feeling in these sides. There really is. And when I've been listening to it in the past couple of weeks, I haven't really paid attention to that as I probably should. Hmm. I should set up four playlists or use your script to do something to make sure yeah. that I'm listening to, you know, each each side. Yeah. So interestingly, this album came out and it wasn't really appreciated originally. And it took a couple of years for critics to say, you know what, this really is a great album. We'll put a link in the show notes to Lenny Kay's Rolling Stone magazine review that you mentioned earlier, which is really enlightening to read that now uh, that, that we know about this record, what it is. I mean, when I first heard it, it was years after it came out. It's the kind of record that in the 70s, I would hear a couple of songs here and there, and then finally, at some point, I bought the record, and there was this sort of, you know, enlightenment moment huh. there, when you hear the whole thing, when you hear all, what is it, 18 songs, um, mm-hmm. that, that it's just incredible mass of music when you think about it. I had, I bought it right away. Um, I had bought, the one of the first singles I bought, that I really bought, was uh, Brown Sugar from Sticky Fingers. So then I bought Sticky Fingers, and when this album came out, I bought it right away, so I was immersed in it right away. And but I wasn't um, I wasn't the blues guy yet, but I was about to be because I met up with a bunch of other guys who, hey, Exile on Main Street, yep, you know. And then we had a lingua franca, and there we were, and uh, <laughs> that got us, you know, that got us looking into other blues and things like that. And then they were already into different kinds of blues, but this was this was definitely a, a really special record for me, anyway. Very formative. But isn't that what they wanted? They wanted to bring the blues back to Americans. Yeah. Well, I think what Mick Jagger said was, um, we want to be portrayed as outlaws and blues is our weapon. That's what he told the, uh, the packaging people. Apparently he told Norman Seif that or one of those people. Um, that's the image they wanted the album to express. And I guess it sort of looks that way. If you've seen the postcards, the postcards that come inside, that... That sort of has a feel of outlaws with blues as a weapon, although I really don't even know what that's supposed to mean now that I'm thinking about it. But it fits my definition of of what the album is supposed to sound like, I guess. So one interesting thing that showed up in the documentary is that for one of the songs, Casino Boogie, they wrote lyrics by writing a bunch of phrases on paper and choosing them at random potential lyrics, potential lyrics, right? You know, using the sort of William Burroughs inspired cut up techniques. And it's true that when you, I can't really quote the lyrics because, well, some of them are not safe for work and all that, but we'd get in trouble if we quoted lyrics. And I know Mick Jagger listens to the podcast, so um, we don't want to do that. But you can look up the lyrics on the Google. Um, the other thing I like about that song is that Keith Richards plays the bass, and um, it's an incredibly lyrical bass performance. Um He's not just doing thub a thub a thub. He's doing dooba do dooba do dooba do dooba do. He's all over it. It's really a terrific bass performance. It's one of my favorite things of all time, actually, just to listen to the way he uh, gets up and down the. It's you know, if you're not used to playing the bass, playing the bass is hard. It's you know, and I'm a bass player, and I can tell you. Uh, but I used to listen to that and just uh, just glorify and uh, and how well he played that song. Yeah, it's it's a record that's full of. If you if you listen carefully, if you look into it, there's a lot of interesting surprises. Yeah. I mean, most people don't care about the personnel who's playing on this and who's playing on that. But if you do, then there are a lot of interesting things going on. Ian Stewart, 
great the great sixth Rolling Stone sure. is featured yep. on several uh, a piano on on several songs. Thank goodness, because he was he's on a lot of their records and he doesn't get credit for it, but he's he's right there on the forefront on a lot of these songs. Yep. Okay. Anything else to say? No. Time for next tracks. Time for next tracks. Pick the don't you can't pick Exile on Main Street though. I can't. Can I pick two? Uh, sure. Okay, thank you. <laughs> because I got two CDs this weekend. There are two collaborative albums by Brian Eno that have been re-released. The first one is Spinner by Brian Eno and Ja Wobble. And the second is Wrong Way Up by Brian Eno and John Cale. I've long found that Wrong Way Up has some of Brian Eno's best songs. The River Spinning Away. There's just some brilliant stuff on it. I never really paid enough attention to Spinner. And I listened to it a half a dozen times this weekend, and it's like, why haven't I listened to this more? Spinner started out as a soundtrack for a Derek Jarman film, I think it was called Glitterbug. And it never got used, or I don't know what the story was. So Eno sent the tapes to Ja Wobble, Ja Wobble's bass player, who's well known for being in Public Image Limited. And he worked on the tapes, and he some a couple of the songs he left alone. Some of them he added a lot of bass and a lot of rhythm. And it's a really, it's a funny kind of soundtrack album to a film that doesn't exist. And it has a coherence. There's two new tracks on this. One of them is a song called Stravinsky that was written back in the same time and not released. And the other is a new track by Joe Wobble called Lockdown, which I wonder what that's about. I guess it's about the lockdown. One thing to note, I don't know how many years I had this the original CD of this before I noticed the hidden track at the end. I don't like hidden tracks. Because the last track left where it falls, which here is seven minutes and two seconds... One day I was listening to it, and I didn't get up to switch the CD, and I started hearing something else that comes in. So that track is, after a couple of minutes of silence, it's 8 minutes and 52 seconds, and it's an early version of Iced World. Iced World is probably my favorite song on The Drop, which is an album that was released in 1997. The original version of Iced World is 32 minutes and 48 seconds, but when they re-released The Drop a few years ago... They shortened it, and it's only 1848. As with many Brian Eno songs, you can just sort of turn them on, and they'll just go until you turn them off. But I always like the drop, because it's this half hour of... I mean, Iced World describes the music. It really does. So, I've got two next tracks. Both of these are available on the streaming services, but I bought the limited edition hardcover CDs with the extra liner notes and all, because why not buy CDs every now and then, right? What about you? You can't pick a Rolling Stones album. Well, it looks like we were shaking the branches of the same tree this week. My pick is uh, Diamond Head by Phil Manzanera. Phil Manzanera is the guitar player for Roxy Music. Uh, this apparently is his first studio album. I guess there's a previously released live album. I don't know. The reason I, uh, I'm, I'm familiar with this is because when 801 Live first came out, which is a, a recording of a performance by Phil Manzanera and a band with Brian Eno, uh, I really like that record. And so I looked around for where some of the other songs came from because I was familiar with some of the Eno songs on that record, but I wasn't familiar with some of the other ones, especially instrumentals. Well, it turns out they turn up on Diamond Head. So I bought this record back in the day. It came out in 1975, so I must have got it when I was in college, uh, a little later than that. And I did not like this record. It sounded terrible. 
And, you know, honestly, it, it put me off Phil Manzanera forever. I, I just had this really bad feeling about anything that Phil Manzanera did was just not going to sound good. And so as a result, I always thought of Roxy Music as just Brian Ferry and Andy McKay. You know, I just didn't really think of Phil Manzanera as a, as a, as a, as a productive contributor to the band. Well, many years have gone by, and I've since learned that Phil Manzanera is actually pretty great. <laughs> but I hadn't listened to Diamond Head in a long time. And the first thing I read in Wikipedia on, on its entry on the album is that the sound quality on the U.S. album was deemed to be worse than the U.K. album. So that explains it. I missed out, and I got the wrong album. I listened to this album uh, recently, and I'm going to listen to it again because I really like the instrumentals on it. Um, there's one called The Flex, which I think is is pretty timeless, actually. There are some great people on this record. Uh, Phil Manzanera essentially just asked Brian Ferry not to show up. <laughs> and so what you get is kind of a Roxy music-sounding album without the the Brian Ferry factor. Brian Eno contributes two songs, sings two songs, which are uh, very much like the stuff he was doing at the time for his pop sort of records. Uh, who else is on it? John Wetton is on here. Paul Thompson is on it. Uh, Andy McKay, Eddie Jobson on strings and, and keyboards and things. So it's it's a really great sounding record. I'm so disappointed that I wasn't able to appreciate it for several decades. Diamond Head by Phil Manzanera is my next track. This was episode number 191 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at NextTrackCast. And don't forget you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We are ad-free, self-sustaining, and so your support is what keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.